This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Sigmund McZiff with a very, very, very ordinary voice this morning. But it's good to be back in the studio and uh, we've got the wonderful Perry Partum in the studio and SK and we're going to have have a great show, I'm sure. Uh, Now, Perry Partum is going to talk about opiates in the USA and what lessons there might be for us here in Australia. And SK is going to deconstruct that iconic uh, Michael... Douglas and Glenn Close movie, Fatal Attraction, which uh, I'm sure uh, will leave some of us resting uh, uneasily. We're also going to reminisce a little bit about uh, our wonderful Anabolics, who has uh, decided to spend her Sunday mornings doing something better. And I must say, when I woke up this morning, and uh, it was about minus 15 degrees, and, uh, I mean, it reminded me of uh, a standard Scottish morning in the Highlands, but uh, uh, I thought, wow, uh, it would be nice not to have to drive all the way over here and come in with ice on the windscreen. Anyway, um, we're going to uh, say farewell to Anabolics. And uh, if my voice does hold up, um, a little bit about uh, the the loose use of uh, some mental health terms, uh, particularly in the public arena. So um, strap yourselves in, as Tallman would all, uh, would always say. Uh, get your get your coffee, your tea, and your scones, and uh, we're uh, going to embark on the next hour. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a And good morning, Perry. How are you? Good morning, Nixif. I'm well. I'm. I was a little bit cold too this morning. Unfortunately, very nice and warm here. Uh, in I, the I saw you in the green room when you walked in, and uh, uh, I think in a mental state examination we would describe you as tremulous. I think that's probably fair to say. <laughs> yeah. And uh, SK. Certainly, from my perspective, the best thing about walking into this studio this morning is that it's well heated. Yeah, it was great coming in from the green room to the booth. Oh, yeah. Toasty. I think those uh, Radio Marinara people, there were a large number in here, and I think we've got a little bit of ambient human heat here. It explains uh, the smell as well. It yeah. does, it does. Uh, well, well, the smell of overconfidence uh, with uh, two Tiger supporters in here, Cantus Maximus <laughs> and uh, NUSK, um, whereas uh, I'm struggling with the demon curse. Just when we finally, when we get the side that can win the premiership, they're all out injured. <laughs> the anyway. side that can win the premiership. <laughs> Good one, Lindsay. Well, oh, laugh as you may. Now, um, any catch-up? I mean, medical stuff in the news, there's... Uh, uh, we, we've sort of been overwhelmed with other things, haven't we? Uh, yeah, politics is dominating. Politics, yeah. Mm. The resurrection or the, the second coming of Tony Abbott. I think we need to call him a zombie at this point because he's zombie? been resurrected so many times, staggering around the landscape. Well, yeah. who, who's the zombie? Who's the walking dead in the Liberal Party at the moment? I think that's up for debate. Well, well, it's... Uh, I, I, I think... Uh, I understand why people are increasingly disillusioned with politics. If you look at all of the parties, they're, they're in some respects riven um, and it's going to be who is the least unelectable. Uh, to be honest, that's, what driven, that's what's driven my subscription to the Washington Post. I can't bear to read Australian news anymore. Cause it's I, for so one, sad. look forward to the election of our new Prime Minister, David Lionhelm. <laughs> <laughs> And in reading the Washington Post, you would no doubt be uh, overwhelmed with stories about my favourite malignant narcissist and psychopath. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually challenging the, the New York psychiatrist who said we cannot make diagnosis by distance. Well, I'm diagnosing. I'm out there. I'm throwing off the shackles. Uh, I, I think Trump's behaviour is so predictably disgraceful Every single thing that has happened, 
Uh, every single thing that he's done, uh, I think, is understandable in the light of this this completely unevolved five-year-old psychopath, con man, malignant narcissist. We have had this discussion on radiotherapy before around whether or not in order to be a successful politician, that's a, a sine qua non, you know, a, a, something that needs to be present in order to suffer the slings and barbs of uh, daily political life. But uh, you, you seem to be saying, Mix, if that he stands out head and shoulders above all of the others that you've seen Mick, and you're making just... the call. It's a big call to make on public radio. Well, well, look. I say that with the rider that I've never examined him, but his behaviour and his comments and uh, um, the way that he interacts, uh, his dealings with women, uh, his attitude towards minorities, his contempt for um, uh, for disfigurement, uh, I'm, uh, I, I find it very, very troubling. Uh, but anyway, that's uh, that's me on my soapbox. Um, and uh, actually, it leads in quite beautifully to what I wanted to talk about today. Yes. Mm, yeah. So uh, there was a story that caught my eye actually in the Washington Post yesterday, talking about the opioid epidemic <clears throat> that's reached crisis proportions now in the US. And there was a councilman in Middletown, Ohio, which sounds like a made-up place, right? But it's apparently real, who said that he wanted to stop funding the paramedics going out and uh, responding to overdose calls. Uh, And he's got a lot of hate mail for that. Um, But if you think about it in a little bit more detail, it doesn't sound quite so um, absolutely bloodthirsty as you would think. So um, Middletown is population 50,000. And so far in 2017, they've had 600 call-outs for ODs. And it costs about $1,000 every time you send out a paramedic. So they estimate they've spent about 10% of their annual revenue already just on paramedic call-outs for overdose deaths or potential deaths. So um, that's quite extreme. And so I, I initially was really struck by this this man's um, response. But then I suppose I read around a little bit more about the sort of the scale and the depth of what's happening in America with opiates. And so I thought I might talk a little bit more about that. Pretty hard to justify stopping responding to people who've done something admittedly stupid and arguably unnecessary and wasting public money. But where do you draw the line? Do you stop ambulance call-outs for people who've drunk themselves into a stupor and crashed their car into a tree? You know, uh, ambulances respond to social need. Emergency rooms are full of people who uh, have done stupid things to themselves, either by acts of omission or commission. Do we do we stop treating people who smoke, for example, and are knowingly damaging their health? That argument's been had. This seems to be along the spectrum of those sort of over-the-top and unworkable responses. Mm, I suppose it's true, except if in, in Middletown you realise they don't actually do any cardiac surgery, for example. So if you have a heart attack, you have to go to Cincinnati from Middletown. They have very limited sort of medical resources and and this is chewing up all of their money, not even their health budget. This is their overall annual budget they've spent 10% of So already. what's the, the end result of this sort of uh, off-the-cuff sort of policy thought bubble from this politician that uh, if we don't respond to these overdoses, the people will kill themselves in the end and uh, the public purse will save a lot of money and everything will be okay again? Well, the end result is actually he's standing down from his position because it was such an unpopular thing oh, to say. <laughs> But I suppose it demonstrates the desperation that they've got in trying to manage what has sort of just snowballed out of control. So um, I'll give you a couple of numbers. There were 33,000 Americans who died in 2015 from opiate deaths. Um, and in fact, the number of people who well, well, died... Let's, let's clarify yeah. opiate deaths. Yep. So opiates, heroin, mm-hmm. morphine-based medications, yep. codeine. Uh, they actually don't... Yes, yes, definitely. But the spike has not been in codeine. Um, the spike has been in fentanyl, carfentanyl, oxycontin and uh, and in heroin. So fentanyl is an extremely powerful opiate, essentially used in anaesthetics, um, but n- not used as much in Australia, as I understand, as it is in the United States. Yeah, that's right. So, And there's actually a, um, an interesting sort of distribution of the kinds of opiates that are used in America and in terms of the geography and in terms of the kind of demographics of the people who use it. So in the Rust Belt, which is where Middletown is, it's heroin. Um, and over on the East Coast in Massachusetts, 
and in Rhode Island, it's fentanyl. And in fact, in New Hampshire, which is a very wealthy part of America, fentanyl is the leading opiate cause of death in the US. Uh, and then when you look elsewhere in Utah and, um, and in West Virginia, people are dying because they're using OxyContin. So it's an interesting distribution. Now, do you have any idea, uh, Perry, whether these fentanyl and OxyContin-related deaths are as a result of medications that have been legally prescribed to these people or is there a black market? It seems as though there's a history to this which kind of dictates the sort of opiate that people are using and dying from and it seems to have started back in the 1990s when in fact it was prescription medication that was provided and that it all started in the Rust Belt so for people who aren't from America that's for um, that's Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia a lot of coal mining in those areas a lot of labouring and a lot of farm based workers and uh, it's an ageing population um, so these people enter their middle 40s and have lots of aches and pains and joint difficulties, back and neck problems. And in the late 90s, there was a big push um, to eliminate pain. We can talk about this as a psychological phenomenon, but initially it was a physical phenomenon. There was an idea that people shouldn't have to live with pain. And... Uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which is the company that manufactures OxyContin, actually brought OxyContin out as a sustained release preparation in 1996, supposedly much less addictive than any of the other kinds of opiates that were available on the market, and it became massively popular and smashed all of the records previously for pain relief medications. It became... Um, unbelievably popular by 2002 it represented 80 percent of purdue pharmaceuticals revenue mm -hmm. and uh, by 2007 purdue pharmaceuticals was pleading guilty to misleading the public as to the supposed non-addictive nature of oxycontin so they paid 600 million dollars in that lawsuit and three of their executives went to jail but by that time the horse had bolted and the opiate epidemic was roaring way out of control and then, because there were all of these law enforcement responses in the Rust Belt, so they rescheduled OxyContin to a Schedule II drug. Uh, they uh, cracked down a lot on illegal prescribing, on un unorthodox prescribing by doctors and by um, drug diversion programs. And so, actually, that's what led people in the Rust Belt to start using heroin because they'd, they'd lost their access to legal prescription drugs. So the heroin rise was used for management of pain by people who were unable to legally access OxyContin? Yes, that's right. Wow. Yeah. So there's, yeah, so there's a bit of a history. Sorry, Kent, you look like you've got something to say. No, no. <laughs> so I find that really interesting that there's this kind of starts off in the Ross Belt and then kind of spreads elsewhere and starts off particularly in a, in a specific demographic. So men in um, age between 25 and 44 who are white, who aren't college educated, and you know who those people are, don't you? They're Trump supporters mm. um, and they're, they're dying like flies, actually. You can sort of, if you, if you were in any... Uh, doubt about what degree of desperation people are feeling in America, it's demonstrated by the fact that there's been an 8% increase in mortality rates in America. Um, and that's been led by this this huge rise in the deaths of these people, um, primarily this group of people. And um, economists have been comparing it to that huge jump in deaths that happened in Russia in the early and the late 90s in the context of the collapse really, of the social and economic system there and the loss of any sort of social welfare net. That's what's happening now in America. And, uh, and, and people are dying in their tens of thousands. And they're all Trump supporters. Clearly, there's an <laughs> urgent need to address this. And what's being done? Well, well in, so uh, predictably in America, it's kind of a piecemeal response. And, and that's probably appropriate because the, the problem is different in different parts of America. So in, in Ohio, for example, there has been primarily a law and enforcement response. They've been reducing people's access and that has meant that they've started using more illegal, more dangerous methods of accessing the opiates. I actually heard on National Public Radio the other day that there's another lawsuit in the States. You mentioned the one against Purdue in the early 2000s, but I believe there's a big class action lawsuit that's being handled by the same people who litigated the massive tobacco settlement uh, several years ago now uh, against opioid manufacturers in the States. Do you know anything about that? No, I don't know anything about that, but it, it seems like an appropriate response, to be honest, given the numbers that are really... 
failing and dying. It's strange, though. The point that was made in the NPR piece was that uh, it's different to cigarettes where the consumer goes out directly and buys a harmful product from a, a retail outlet. Uh, in the case of opiates, certainly prescribed opiates, there's a middleman, and that middleman is generally a medical practitioner. So whether it's the pharmaceutical manufacturers who should be held liable for the production of what after all is a legal product that does have a, a definite although limited therapeutic use versus the medical practitioners who are prescribing it and it seems a long bow to be litigating against the manufacturers of a pharmaceutical drug on the one hand and not taking the doctors to task. Oh, they're taking the doctors to task. But I would I would argue that the doctors were in a difficult position. Uh, there's all this information which was... Um, available at the time about the kind of pushing that the drug companies were doing, particularly towards um, general practitioners who were in um, the more rural areas of Kentucky and West Virginia. And uh, the promotional materials, I think it's the the tagline is get back into the swing of it. And there's these kind of 80 year old people driving on the front of the CD. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was all about the idea that you need to get your patients back on their feet. You need to give them another chance at life. You need to give them the opportunity to really embrace, um, you know, the physical activity. And that's a hard message to sort of um, reject, really, particularly if uh, the alternative is that you are, um, you know, then going to have your patients living in pain, really. And it's a hard message to reject in an environment in the States where you've got direct marketing of pharmaceuticals to the public via yeah. television and radio and so forth. And that's a key difference to the Australian context, I suppose. Yeah, and I think that's significant. Um, you know, whenever you go to the US, actually, I, I'm really struck by the ads for drugs on bus hoardings and trains. And Yeah, it's often psychotropic drugs yeah. as well. Yeah, know, yeah, antidepressants. Feeling and a bit low, take Prozac. <laughs> yes, and mood stabilisers. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, Seroquel, yeah, lots of lots of ads. Yeah, so so I, I think that's that's true. It, it's a very particular environment, the American environment, isn't it? It's got all these particular pressures that then result in these huge sort of um, phenomena, and it's killing it's killing a, a large swathe of them at the moment. So what's what's happening going forward? Are they looking at amending legislation to try and clamp down further on the the use of prescription opiates? The whole replacement of one drug with another, Oxycontin with heroin in this case, that's got implications for the broader so-called war against drugs. What's mm, happening? I think it does. So I know what's happening in Ohio, which is they're trying to use Suboxone uh, to provide people with a, a limited degree of management of their addiction um, and to help them stabilise their lives. And that's so a Suboxone is an uh, agonist antagonist and so it works both in the same way as an opiate, but it also works against the opiate. So it, uh, it's, in, in, in some respects, not dissimilar to methadone. Yeah, they're very similar drugs, which are both used to try to help people uh, reduce that kind of boom-bust experience that they have when they get high and then they withdraw so that uh, they're better able to live despite the drug rather than living for it. Can I chip in on this point? Because I have some knowledge of Suboxone. Uh, the chemical name of it is buprenorphine. Yes. And uh, my knowledge comes from the fact that the little known fact, by the way, McZiff and Perry Patton, that my father discovered that drug. Back in the 1960s, he was employed as a, as a lab assistant for Rickett and Coleman and uh, he was employed screening, screening opiate compounds and late one night, buprenorphine was a compound that he happened to screen and uh, he sort of co-authored the first scientific paper on that drug. He's done nothing since. <laughs> he doesn't need to have done anything since. That's, that's, he should be, is he on a yacht somewhere? No, no, because he was a company employee working oh, no. at a fairly low level. So, of course, Reckitt and Coleman got all the royalties for the drugs and they've since been bought out at the Reckitt Ben Kisser now as the drug company. But when it was discovered, its great white hope as an opiate was that it did have this agonist-antagonist property. And what that means is that when prescribed at a low dose, it has all of the activities hitting the opioid receptor that we'd associate from taking an opiate but beyond a certain dose point it was said to reverse its activity so beyond when you get into high doses it becomes an antagonist and shuts off the opiate receptor so in other words if you start abusing buprenorphine to a certain extent and exceed a particular dose then it tips you into withdrawal. So theoretically, it was a drug that was very hard to become addicted to because, you know, once you're addicted and develop tolerance, 
the ability to escalate the dose in response to that tolerance was said to be fairly limited. It hasn't actually panned out that way as it happens. This antagonist-agonist property is more a, a theoretical thing than a practical thing. So people still do abuse buprenorphine. That is one of the most extraordinary wow moments I've heard in the studio. That's re- that, that is an extraordinary piece of history. Well, arguably, yeah, it's a little footnote in history, really, but it's... it's <laughs> and and uh, your dad, is he uh, hale and hearty? Oh, he's, in, he's about to hit 80 now. Uh, and is he listening? No, he's not. He's in the UK. Uh, you know, he's the sort of personality who's been convinced he was, he's been going to die for the past 40 years. So, you know, his definition of hale and hearty is probably quite different to mine. Well, it's nice to hear the incredible warmth that you've got towards him. <laughs> I've uh, got issues, McZiff. I'll yeah. talk to you later. <laughs> well, boy. boy. I, I thought I knew you well. well. I think that's absolutely astounding. So, buprenorphine first identified and isolated in Australia? The late, no, the late 1960s. It was in the UK at that time oh, as well. Oh, how disappointing. Yeah. I thought we could claim it for our, nope. our Australian medication. No. Okay. So... Wow, I was just completely knocked me off my yeah, previous yeah, yeah. frame so, of mind. Okay, so so the US has got this unbelievable opiate issue. Yeah. When you ask the average Australian in the street, what's the biggest drug problem that we have here, they will almost certainly, I would imagine, say ice. Yes, and I would say that too. So I was debating earlier whether or not I could say this on radio, but speaking as a psychiatrist who works in an emergency department, I wish people would use heroin rather than ice because it's so much, it's so agitating and it's so psychotogenic. Ice is. Ice is, that's right. And um, I think I just, uh, I think it really, the, the thing is, I suppose, I see the way it destroys people's lives, whereas the heroin epidemic is invisible to me. Um, And I know, and I I think it's interesting to sort of contrast the history of drug use in Australia and America because I know that there was a big heroin problem in Melbourne in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, and it sort of dried up and disappeared to some extent. And ice now and methamphetamine seem to be the drugs of choice that I encounter in the ED anyway. It brings us back to this whole argument of legalising opiates to some extent. You know, Mm. the whole uh, injecting room harm minimisation approach was intended to stop people dying from opioid overdoses in Australia. And, you know, to a large extent, the problem is much less great than it was back in the 80s and 90s. But uh, I've heard it said that heroin itself uh, is actually quite a safe drug, but people die because of the various impurities and fluctuations in the purity of the street form of the drug. So if it were regulated and were able to be, for example, prescribed and controlled, you could almost eliminate the problem entirely. Well, well, they they die because of that, but they also die when they come off and then go back on it and their bodies have not adjusted and uh, and the dosage is excessive. So they die from a respiratory arrest at those times. Again, perhaps you could minimise that problem if uh, were it to be prescribed and regulated, at least people could have conversations with their doctors about what to expect following a period of abstinence. Yeah, but in an yeah. uncontrolled form, people aren't widely aware of this loss of tolerance effect that you've described, so people die as a result. Mm. There's always been a big push to get injecting rooms set up up in Victoria and particularly in places where people die in large numbers from heroin overdoses. Um, But the political will, it seems, is not there currently. Well, well, there's aspects of the political will, but uh, it always seems to get trumped. Coin a phrase. <laughs> to coin a phrase. Yeah. And there we are, back with Trump. And so so, <clears throat> so in, the, in the emergency department where you work, mm. you would not see, by uh, and large, the complications of, uh, of heroin use and heroin overdose. Well, I suppose that's true. So I see people who become really psychotic or highly agitated or um, enraged as a consequence of ice use. And for that reason, a lot of the emergency departments around Melbourne have developed... Um, rooms which are um, they're called behaviours of concern rooms where people can be in a highly agitated state and not be in close proximity with other patients uh, in adjacent cubicles because the problem is that significant that people um, nursing staff and other staff in the hospital emergency department environment are at risk and so are patients because people are so unable to control their behaviour which is which and we've had the tragic 
the unbelievably tragic news this week of the death of a much-loved cardiac surgeon um, who was allegedly assaulted by uh, somebody at uh, Box Hill Hospital. So, um, and um, we have to be very careful with what we say because uh, this is obviously going to come before the courts, but there is there was some suggestion, I understand, that this individual had been had mental health issues or substance abuse issues. So, um, and everybody would automatically read into that, um, has this person been on ice and uh, has uh, has this impacted on the behavior that's led to, to the tragic death of this surgeon. So, I mean, it is a major community issue here. And uh, so, so what's happening in the hospitals? Well, apart from redesigning our emergency departments, um, I think that uh, sometimes some emergency departments have taken the uh, approach of um, actually sedating people to the point that they are intubated if they're highly agitated where they can't be um, contained in their behaviour and their risk. But how do you get them people? to a position where you can actually sedate them in the first instance to intubate them? Well, I mean, that, that requires quite a lot of staff support. So, unfortunately, Which is code for physical restraints, yeah. uh, peripatum, I gather. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But it's a toxic environment to work in, isn't it? Even when they hit the psychiatry mm. wards. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I don't like adult psychiatry, uh, I'd much rather deal with an older person who's bopping, perhaps due to their being pain-free. Uh, you don't see the, the ice abuse amongst elderly patients. Well, you might start to. I mean, that's the demographic that's getting older now too. So one of the things that, the, one of the other articles that I didn't think I was going to talk about today actually was um, uh, where the, the age of people who are using crack cocaine in the US is actually rising. So uh, the younger people in New York, for example, aren't using aren't using crack. Uh, it's really the people in their middle 40s now who are using, who started using when they were in their mid-20s. So it's become, um, as the population has aged, the, the modes of abuse of drugs of all kinds have aged with them. So you might find that they're ageing into your demographic. Well, yeah, one of my fears is that in 20 years' time uh, in old age psychiatry, we're going to be seeing people who either ongoing or in the past had uh, problems with methamphetamine and we don't know what that does to the brain on a long-term basis. Mm. We're starting to see some of the older dopeheads from the 60s coming through into age psychiatry now, but they seem largely harmless. <laughs> and more cheerful. So that, that's, that's it on the opioid epidemic. We should probably start talking about something cheerier. Yeah, yeah fatal attraction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're with, with Perry Partum, with SK, with myself, McZiff, and with Kentus Maximus. And SK, fatal attraction. Fatal attraction. I mean, McZiff, to me, it's a good example of how ageing distorts your perception of time because I, I reviewed, rewatched this movie uh, during the week and realised when the end credits rolled that it's now 30 years old. You know, this film came out in 1987 and it seems like the blink of an eye uh, to me since people had hair like that. Uh, Glenn Close. But it was it was the highest grossing film worldwide in 1987, uh, second highest grossing film in the USA. And I guess to me that speaks about the uh, the cultural impact that it had and the controversy that it generated at the time. It was uh, very well received upon release and got six Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture and uh, Best Actress for Glenn Close. didn't actually pick up any of those gongs, but it was uh, very well regarded. And, of course, it survives in the, uh, the cultural uh, consciousness through introduction of the term bunny boiler to uh, the, uh, the vocabulary of Western civilization. So it starred Michael Douglas, a very young-looking Michael Douglas, I... <laughs> rush to say, and uh, also Glenn Close in what was quite a different role for her at the time. Uh, Michael Douglas played a successful, happily married Manhattan lawyer uh, who during the course of his work meets uh, a character called Alexandra or Alex Forrest, uh, played by Glenn Close, who's an editor for a leading publishing company. And whilst uh, Michael Douglas's family are out of town one weekend, uh, he and the Glenn Close character have uh, a brief one-night stand, or so he thinks. Uh, things turned out quite differently, although in the film we see it was uh, initially understood by both as being just a fling. Uh, Alex starts clinging to him after this one night, and uh, because the family's away for a weekend, he sort of conned into spending a second night with her, uh, and during the day they 
go out and discuss art, culture, books, politics, etc., etc. Uh, but when he tries to cut the uh, the fling off at the end of that second night, uh, she cuts her wrists in front of him and sort of draws him back in, soliciting, helping-type behaviour from him. He then moves on and thinks the affair is forgotten, but she starts ringing him at work and, you know, he has to use the secretary as a bit of a wall to stop him from taking further calls from him. When he stops taking calls, she turns up at the office to see him, again, to try and maintain contact. She offers him tickets to go out and see Madame Butterfly with her and he declines. His house is up for sale at the time. She then escalates and goes to the home on the pretext of being an interested purchaser and meets his wife and he walks home and witnesses uh, that exchange between Glenn Close, his his lover, and his his current wife. Uh, They ultimately move home, but Alex follows them to the new home and spies on them from outside. Uh, She tells him at one point uh, that he's pregnant and he offers to do what he refers to as the right thing at the time and and pay for a termination, but she declines that and insists that he face up to his uh, responsibilities. She then starts doing uh, escalating behaviour. She throws acid on his car, which is one of those uh, late 80s era era Volvos, and arguably she improved its appearance as a result. Uh, She she then picks Michael Douglas's daughter up from school without uh, informing the mother. You know, takes her to Coney Island, the amusement park, in the meantime, Mum's rapidly looking around, looking for her lost child. And uh, ultimately, of course, she visits the family home and uh, Mum returns home and find the, finds the daughter's pet rabbit uh, stewing in a pressure cooker, uh, the bunny boiler. Uh, things escalate, shows up late at night with a knife. Michael Douglas tries to drown her in the bath. Uh, eventually, his wife shoots her. So it doesn't have a happy ending. So it's not really not really uplift the uplifting change of topic that you were hoping for, Perry Padham. Never mind. <laughs> this film engendered a lot of discussion about the potential consequences of infidelity, and uh, some men, you know, went up to the film's producers in years after its release and thanked them for saving them their own marriages because it made them reflect on the possible consequences of their own behaviour. The film wasn't well received by feminists who didn't appreciate the portrayal of a strong, independent, single female character as being mentally ill, mix if, and this sort of dovetails into a discussion we might have later. Uh, this strong, independent career woman who was depicted at the same time to be psychopathic at best or, or mentally ill. And uh, some feminist readings of this film have uh, said that it speaks to this apparent incompatible in- incompatibility between a successful career on the one hand and personal happiness on the other. The Glenn Close character was depicted very much uh, in a sympathetic way at some points, but, you know, she was the, the lonely, isolated woman who's devoted her life to career and hasn't been able to do well in, uh, in both spheres of her life at once. And the morality of the, the film was called into question as well. It's, it seems to utilise this cinematic trope of, you know, the bad woman entering a, uh, a good relationship where traditional couple politics dominate. The man's the provider, the woman is the good wife who stays at home and the strong independent woman gets, uh, gets punished for her uh, daring to intrude into this uh, dyad. Equally, the film illustrates a major double standard. I mean, at the end of the day, what made this film a source of great discomfort for men was that it did highlight to them that consequences have actions. And the Michael Douglas character in this film is very, or can be very ambiguously perceived. I mean, ostensibly, he's the film's hero. But let's look at what he does. He's careless about... uh, birth control for one thing he cheats on his wife uh there's a lack of compassion both for his wife's feelings and for the feelings of the other woman perhaps when she's spurned uh he views his responsibilities having impregnated glenn close as being limited to paying for a termination there's no uh investedness in the, the consequences of what he's done there uh he treats both his wife and Glenn Close quite terribly, as it happens, but yet the audience is supposed to be supportive of him. So it makes us inhabit a very ambiguous moral space whilst we're viewing this film. McZiff, uh, as a woman, uh, how, how did you view this film yourself? Uh, look, thank you for uh, the second time in this show that you've uh, taken me out of my comfort zone. Um, 
I, I remember at the time, like in, in 1987, being deeply unsettled by the movie at a whole lot of levels. Um, um, I, 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 I take the argument. I mean, I think that, that I, I, well, let me answer it this way. I think it would be very difficult to make that same sort of film today. I wonder, though, if what has been made more recently is a similar kind of idea, but with a bit of a modern twist. So Gone Girl really rose in my mind when you talked about the dynamics here and about the idea of a terrifying woman doing unpredictable things to destroy the kind of, you know, idyllic family life that everyone should aspire to. It plays against character, it plays against movie convention, doesn't it? Yeah, Gone Girl was a good example with that twist there. Do you think there's but, a... But can I just... The... the um, in, in the... Yeah, I just wonder whether that... I mean, the, the point that you make that Michael Douglas was um, uh, to be seen as the, as the hero in that movie, if it was uh, in the converse... Uh, if it was the woman who had acted out, who'd been irresponsible, who'd behaved badly, who had had an affair, uh, w- would that w- would that same uh, hero making status occur? That that would be. I, I I would be dubious because I think that there are not insignificant gender issues that were at play in the movie and. I would doubt that they would get the same traction today. I guess it does illustrate the double standard, as you say, but th- maybe there's a generational component here as well, and, you know, Perry Patton as a younger woman. Only slightly younger. <laughs> do, do, do you have a contemporary view on this film with a younger set of eyes? Uh, so I think that... Um, I, I would say that more recently there's been less of this dichotomised position between a woman who stays at home and looks after her children and the career woman who sort of looks at the you know idol of family bliss from outside the picket fence um at the moment i think a lot of the um stories that are being told seem to be more about the inability to really manage the two demands to be the person having the children and trying to work outside the home that's the thing that's that's the challenge that people talk about in movies and books yeah and i think that's still probably part of the message of fatal attraction which is really only one of a of a, of a whole subgenre, if you like of films that deal with stalking as a general subject and uh, the, the topic of the female stalker is a more specific uh, subtype. I mean, if you go back to the early 1970s, probably the first film of this type was a Clint Eastwood film called Play Misty for Me. Mm. Uh, he was a, a radio presenter, McZiff, who was stalked by a, a crazed female fan. The most, the, uh, probably the most terrifying film I've ever seen. Is yeah, that right? yeah. There was a bit of a moral difference in yeah. Play Misty for me, though, in that the stalker, both the stalker and the Clint Eastwood character were single, so it didn't have that overlay of, of marital politics, perhaps, that we see here. Mm. But there's been a number of imitators of Fatal Attraction in the years seen. There was... Uh, some of these films may be familiar to. There was one called The Crush. There was one in the 90s called Swim Fan. Uh, another one called Poison Ivy, then Single White Female, of course, with uh, Bridget Fonda and uh, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. I think mm. they were all sort of late 90s films as well. But there's a, a, a common series of elements in each of these films when you look at it. The the males in these films, the subjects who are being stalked, they're generally super successful and wildly popular and always essentially good guys or shown that way. In their approach to uh, their intimate relationships, they're shown as being tender, slow, soft, people who stroke the cheek and stroke the hair sort of things. There's usually a good partner in in these sort of films as well, uh, whether it's a wife or a a girlfriend, who's contrasted with the uh, the so-called evil woman or the she-devil who breaks in and disrupts the uh, the status. And and typically the the bad woman and the... uh, the good women are distinguished by having different hair colours as well. As mm-hmm. well. Yep. And often the femme fatales are shown as being blonde, yeah, which is uh, an interesting societal comment as well. But if you think about the iconic nature of that film and the fact that Michael Douglas appeared in it and was the kind of the vulnerable uh, um, and bewildered male, he then very cleverly played against type subsequently when he was paired with Gwyneth Paltrow um, in the film which has escaped my mind, the name of which has just disappeared, where he gaslit her and oh. and um, and tried to murder her for her family's fortune. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, I guess uh, Glenn Close, uh, in a similar vein, took on this role to play against type. Her previous couple of film roles had been, you know, very much different uh, soft romantic lead type things and and this was a a, a game changer for her and uh, resulted in her being, you know, sent multiple scripts of a similar type after this. Uh, An issue for me is whether or not you can reliably state that this film shows the Glenn Close character as having a, a psychiatric disorder. And again, because if you're going to talk about the dangers, we've talked about the dangers of diagnosis from a distance and the loose terminology with which we throw around terms like uh, mental illness. Uh, Fatal Attraction will often get thrown up as an example of a film where the female character suffers from borderline personality disorder. And indeed, she has a number of borderline traits that are shown in the film. She's shown to be quite impulsive, to be emotionally labile, to switch rapidly from one emotional state to another. Uh, She makes frantic efforts to avoid abandonment by her romantic interest by trying to re-engage him in ways that vary from the tender and emotional through to the frankly uh, dangerous. Uh, She flips between idealising him on the one hand and devaluing him at another. She sent him a tape on on one occasion where, uh, you know, she felt he'd he'd rejected her so her language in that tape was all abusive and demeaning towards him and these features are all seen as part of the borderline cluster of traits other people who viewed the film have said that she is likely to suffer from something called erotomania which was given a french eponymous name de clarembole syndrome and uh, in this uh, psychiatric syndrome which is probably a form of psychosis the uh, the sufferer, which is usually uh, a younger woman of lower social status, becomes fixated upon a high-status male and forms the delusional belief that uh, he is in love with her but can't declare his love for a variety of reasons, perhaps contingent on his status. I don't see great evidence in uh, Fatal Attraction of Glenn Close being psychotic or having that delusion, and perhaps the flip between idealisation and devaluation uh, might argue against that. Though when reality finally dawns on people who do suffer erotomania, uh, you often do see that dynamic flip as well. In the psychiatric literature, there has actually been coined a term, fatal attraction syndrome. Uh, Stalking behaviour and borderline personality was an article that was uh, produced in the late 1990s, and it looked at... uh, Uh, personality-based diagnoses in terms of the incidence of stalking and uh, that demographic surveys uh, amongst people who had been the subject of stalking and according to the United States Department of Justice some 8% of women and 2% of men have been victimised at some point in their lives by stalkers and that of the female stalkers who conducted such victimisation, up to 45% of them were said to have this borderline personality disorder. Interestingly, uh, when interviewed about the film Glenn Close, uh, as part of her study for the character, she actually had detailed discussions with two psychiatrists, uh, neither of whom, when they read the script, suggested that the character was likely suffering from a mental illness, which is which is interesting. But it's certainly been read that way by psychiatrists who viewed the films over the years. I don't know whether either of you have uh, additional thoughts on that point. I wonder what the other uh, 55% of those women were suffering from if they weren't suffering from some kind of mental health problem. Well, they may not have been suffering from anything, you know. Mm. You could view uh, stalking as along the, the normal spectrum of human behaviour. There's a, a local forensic psychiatrist called Paul Mullen who's very well published in this area and I think in his papers he's described a number of different types or motivations for stalking which can range from the delusional, you know, those who become psychotically fixated on somebody through to people who have personality problems, through to people that Mullen describes as incompetent suitors. You know, they're just not very good at courtship and approaching the opposite opposite sex and the ways in which they try and pursue a relationship uh, are just socially inappropriate. But it it speaks to a lack of knowledge or a lack of capacity perhaps on the person who's stalking rather than necessarily the mental illness. And I think this gets back to to McZiff's point at the start of the show that, you know, sometimes we use these terms terms or invoke the idea of mental illness too glibly because the general public doesn't have a great understanding of what sort of behaviour is likely to occur in the context of a mental illness and and what isn't. Mm. I mean, all too often when we hear of some horrific crime, 
that you know surely no sane person would have done the assumption becomes that the person is mentally ill perhaps the media exacerbate this view and certainly the way in which film depicts mental illness is notorious for creating this uh, uh, myth of uh, the, the mentally ill mass murderer or serial killer or stalker or whatever. Uh, most mentally ill people aren't violent at all and far more violent acts are completed, are, are completed by those without a mental illness than those with. It's just that when an act is committed by a mentally ill person, it's much more likely to receive extreme publicity mix of... And glorification. And, uh, and th- I mean, that's... People don't make movies, by and large, about boring topics um about boring people because you don't get bums on seats so uh so that's why we have movies like fatal attraction Mm. well we're going to take a brief break there uh a station announcement thanks sk for that and we'll come back and we'll uh we'll wrap up a bit and talk a little bit uh further about the uh the overuse of uh, of terms or the loose use of terms and uh also a farewell to anabolic but in those last few minutes that we've got i i I don't know whether I'm being oversensitive, but I find that the loose use of these terms, mental illness, mental health, depression and anxiety, have essentially rendered the use meaningless. Do you know what, though? I wonder if maybe we can't have it both ways. We've campaigned to reduce the stigma against mental health problems for so long and tried to encourage people to own their diagnosis and to be unashamed in discussing it. Maybe there's a bit of a pendulum swing that happens as a consequence where a lot more people, you know, consider the possibility that they've got a mental health problem and, you know, maybe think about the label, use it on themselves and try it out for a while. What do you think about that? I I hope you're right, um, but... Um, I'm starting to get ready for some nuance, for some sophistication in the discussion, because I think that it um, the the problem with the overuse of the terms is that it really disadvantages people with very significant levels of distress, long-standing distress, people who have a major depressive disorder. Uh, I think that I think that the term depression has virtually lost all meaning now because it is a blanket term that doesn't that in, that that ranges from those who are suffering from melancholic depression that needs hospitalization because the person is so well to someone who's feeling a bit down sk I think the problems arisen because the general public uh, use the word in quite a different way to how we as psychiatrists might use it. I mean, the first thing I say nowadays when somebody walks in my room and says, I'm depressed, I say, what do you mean? Because the general public uh, seem to equate depression not with this persistent, severe state that you've described, but, you know, somebody might say they're depressed if they've just had a bad week, for example, and the term gets used very loosely in non-professional parlance, and I'd I'd agree with you that in that setting... uh, uh, it, it has lost its specific meaning. I also think it's uh, it's used uh, occasionally by people with high profiles who do bad things, and uh, you know they play the uh, the depression card or the mental health problems card as a, as a bit of a get out of jail ticket. Uh, can think of footballers who are, who are admitted to, to hospital, you know, for mental health reasons, and what they're really in there for is for a drug substance abuse type problem. I think it's uh, mental health problems has become a bit of a, of a misleading, meaningless term as well. But I actually, I mean, for both of those reasons, I'm I'm quite pleased that people would rather say that they had a mental health problem than that they had some other problem because again, it shows the reduction in stigma. The thing that I, the only thing that really annoys me about the loose use of Um, mental health terms in general parlance is the use of schizophrenic when people really say I'm in two minds they would be better off saying I'm in two minds that annoys me I don't like that (laughs) do you you think people have an understanding of schizophrenia as being in two minds I think they uh use it loosely as, uh, as as a euphemism for psychotic and I think the word psychotic gets thrown around a bit too much as well. Yeah, I think that's true. No, no, I've, well, I've heard it a couple of times and it surprised me that they were kind of like, this is a schizophrenic approach to this situation, blah, 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 and I thought, well, oh, that's not right. I've heard politicians use, uh, use it in that sense, you know, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
But again, I, I'm actually pleased. I'm pleased that people are using those terms. In the same way that Freudian uh, ideas kind of percolated through to popular culture in the 1930s and the 1940s, and it became acceptable to have the idea of an unconscious and a subconscious and for people to have motivations that weren't totally straightforward and to think about what your dreams meant and that sort of stuff, I think it's good. Well, I think it's great. opposing that not- <laughs> views. Because if you, you'd seem quite uh, on your high horse when you brought this up. Why, why do you feel so strongly about this issue? Uh, I... Well, well, I have concerns about it in the forensic setting where people are using the mental health defence and, uh, and on very questionable grounds, uh, not infrequently. And I have concerns about it in the, in the public setting where um, there is... P- people are, for example, saying, well... I, uh, say, for example, a, a high-profile sports person says... Um, I've, I've got a mental health problem. Well, that is as meaningless as saying uh, a footballer saying, I've got a physical health problem. Now, th- they might have the flu or they might have a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament. There, there are, there, there, I mean, these are issues that are at opposite poles of significance and severity uh, in terms of the consequences. And there is a lack of sophistication, a complete lack of nuances, as I was saying before, in the discussion, in the usage of the terms. And now, I don't want people to feel as though they've got to come entirely clean and say, well, I've got exactly this condition and I've been diagnosed with that and I'm being treated like this. But I do think that that there there needs to be perhaps a, a more... Uh, uh, a more detailed understanding of some of the terms that are used by and large in the mental health arena. And I think that where the, the loose use, uh, I, I'm not as positive or bullish as you are, Perry. I, I'd actually differ with Perry on one of the points that you made in relation to stigma. You know, people coming out and saying that they have a mental health problem. I mean, to me, uh, once somebody says that, it automatically invokes the veil of secrecy over what that problem actually is. And McSiff said earlier that, you know, if a footballer does their ACL, they're, they don't, they're not backwards about talking about that. They'll say who their surgeon is, what the rehab process is, exactly what went wrong, the circumstances that caused the injury. Whenever a high-profile person has a, a mental health issue, we're all encouraged to step back and give them their privacy and time to deal with it. That, to me, still speaks very strongly of stigma. Maybe that's true, but if the effect of disclosing that you have a mental health problem is that people are more gentle and supportive of you, I think that's, you know, all to the good, right? Yeah, and, you know, mental health problems, I, I think the, the scope of mental health program problems has been widened so long as to make even diagnostically mental health problems a bit meaningless, you know. Uh, people are now diagnosing gambling addiction, for example. Okay, it's in the DSM-5 or whatever, but really, is it a mental health problem? Is it a social problem? Uh, what can be counted in and counted out as mental health? Oh, that's so interesting because there's a lot in mental health that actually is more social, I would argue. Yeah, so. and let's let's talk about it in that context. Well, we've got 30 seconds to go and uh, it's been a fascinating show. Perry, thank you very much for, for uh, uh, introducing the opiate stuff Uh SK Fatal Attraction, um, I think, uh, left most of us a little bit jittery. And uh, Kent, thank you very much for your wonderful, uh, your wonderful paneling again. We're going to go and celebrate with uh, with Anabolics, who has been a mainstay of this show, the most wonderful personality, and who is moving on to greener pastures. And we want to just thank her for all of her wonderful years here in the show, a voice of reason, uh, of intellect, of compassion, and a wonderful contributor to the Triple R family. So uh, all the best to you in the future, Anabolics, uh, and I'm sure many, many listeners will, will be missing you from now on. See you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.